usually relatively early on in life, we discover that unfortunately not everybody has our best interests at heart. And, you know, we discovered all sorts of ways. I remember being in fifth grade and discovering that Brendan King did not have my best interests at heart. Brendan King wanted to fight me because there was really no answer to the because. Just wanted to fight me. And we, we rolled on the ground and we fought. And I was relatively used to fighting. I fought a lot as a kid. But I it had the same thing because there's really nothing after that. But uh, Brendan, I learned several things in that fight. One is that Brendan King did not have my best interest at heart, particularly when he punched me in the temple. I also discovered I couldn't hit anybody in the face. It really, it really, I realized at that point I needed to fight less because I used, I was a big kid, as you can see by the point sitting now. <laughs> I was, I was a big kid. Don't know what happened. But I, I usually just could pin people down and make them give. But with Brendan King, that wouldn't work. He wouldn't give up. And I needed to punch him in the face and I just couldn't do it. I just, I didn't have it in me. He had it in him <laughs> to punch me in the face. But I realized he didn't have my best interests heart. At some point we all realize that, right? Not everybody's on your side. We like them to be, and we hope we'll end up with some people on our side. And the truth is, as you grow older, the people you realize do have your best interests at heart, who are on your side, become more and more valuable because it's just the way of the world. Not everybody is. I like that. Uh, well, I like the police, but I like that section of Message in a Bottle where he walked out this morning. Don't believe what I saw. A hundred billion bottles washed up in the shore. Seems I'm not alone of being alone. 100 billion castaways all looking for a home. The sense we develop at some point that we might just be alone and that's not okay. And we need some people on our side. We have to have some people who are our best interests at heart. And so we search for that with friendships, with relationships, with marriage. Search for that. You know, most of us find some. But there's perhaps a bigger question. We know not everybody's on our side. That's okay. We can deal with that. The bigger question is, does God have our best interests at heart? And, and if that's not true, that is unlikely not okay. It is a question that we're going to explore today that Jesus explores on the fly as he deals with some stuff. And, and today we're taking a little bit of a break between series and we're going to look at a passage out of Project 345. It's John 10. It would have been the passage you would read today, or you read by Friday. Or the electronic thing a little off. It would be the last passage you read. We'll do this periodically. And John 10 is a fascinating passage with, for some of you, probably some familiar lines, but it's the context that brings the power of it. As Jesus tries to explain, essentially to restore the credibility of the goodness of God to people who stopped or were losing their sense of belief in it. This is not theoretical. I will not use the exact words, but in the green room I said, we think this is true, but God's not throwing stuff at us because he's not a blank. And most of us think, okay, I'd like to believe that God's not just throwing stuff at me because sometimes that's what it feels like. Sometimes what it feels like is, yes, God is just throwing things at me, Otherwise, how do I explain this? There are some things that can rock our belief that God is good and He has our best interests at heart. 
Jesus faces that down and attempts to restore the credibility of that with some very powerful words in this passage. I'm going to give you the background. Before John 10, there was John 9. And in John 9, what happens is this. Jesus sees a blind guy. He thinks that's bad. The guy is suffering and can't see, so he heals him. One would think that the religious leaders of the day would be happy of this. That somebody who is suffering is no longer suffering. This seems unmitigatedly good. And yet, the religious leaders, and they say, you go back and read this if you haven't already. In John 9, it says at one point they begin insulting him. The guy was blind. He just got healed. And they begin insulting him. Because they don't like that Jesus healed him. Now, in the midst of that, you get this overarching sense. So, the religious leaders, they're the ones representing God, right? And they're not really that happy that my suffering ceases. They're more concerned with their power base and their position in society. They represent God. They do not have my best interest at heart. I was blind, and now I see, and they don't care. In fact, they're angry about it. So, does God care at all about my suffering? There are things that can rock our sense that God is good. One of them is our experience in church. Our experience in church can tend to teach. For some of you, I know I've talked to some of you, you said this to me flat out, that your upbringing in the church made you go, if that's it, I'm not interested. Because this presents to me a picture of God who's quite honestly just a little bit irritated and ticky. And there isn't a whole lot of care for my life. It's just a religious system. Sometimes your religious background, your church background, will actually do damage to your sense that God is good, that he's on your side. But the other thing that damages that is the way of the world. The things we experience. Sometimes, life is hard. And stuff hits us. And so we begin to question. God, where are you? What's the because? Where's the answer to my question? Or is stuff just happening? This is where Jesus waits in. I'm gonna we're gonna look at just about uh, about half of John chapter ten, and we're gonna look at four different sections. And the first section, after this whole scenario where they're demeaning the guy who got healed, Jesus tells a parable. He says this, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out on his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep will follow him because they know his voice. But they never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they did not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus uses figures speak, but they went, what? Seriously, and, and sometimes I think in, in listening to Jesus, you know, your head's on a swivel going, context, you know, out of the blue. Just you know, this guy, people are upset. He goes, I tell you the truth. The one who lets in people and doesn't climb over the fence, and they're going, what in the world are you talking about? Sheep, shepherd, gates? Thieves, not with you, Jesus, not falling at all. Just let me explain. It says this. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I'm the gate for the sheep. 
All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let me be clear. There are thieves and robbers. There are people who present to you a view of truth and the reality of God, and it will steal your soul. Let me be clear. I'm the gate. If you enter a relationship with God through me, I'll take care of it. Then he uses the metaphor of the sheep. They'll go out and they'll find pasture. Sheep are dumb. The shepherd is the one who makes sure they find pasture so they can eat and move and live and then brings them back into safety. He says, that, that's my job. That's what I do. I'm the gate. If you come through me, I will make sure that you find pasture and then are safe and taken care of. Oh, this may steal and rob and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life to the full. I haven't come to steal your life. I've come to give it to you. And in so doing, he's painting a picture of God and reinforcing this. The point of faith, the point of connection to God is life in its fullness. It is not to shrink it, it's to expand your life. He says, in no uncertain terms, I have your best interest at heart. You see, sheep God follow the shepherd. It goes poorly if they don't. The sheep must believe the shepherd has their best interest at heart. Jesus makes the claim. I'm on your side. Now, of course, somebody making the claim doesn't really do anything, does it? He's trying to make a point, but he hasn't dealt with any of the issues. He simply said, I know what you've seen. I know sometimes you think that God's not on your side, but he is. And I'm here as proof positive of that. And then he goes on. Essentially, he demonstrates it in two ways. And at first, he says this. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. C.S. Lewis once said in the book, The Problem of Pain, that there is no one who would look at the world around them, just look at the world around them and assume that God is good. He said, you must remember that all the major religions of the world were formed at a time when there was no anesthesia. Think about it. No pain medication of any sort. There's nobody who would look around the world and just like staring at the world and counting up the events of the world would say, oh yeah, so there's a good and benevolent God behind it. And then he poses the question, so why would we say that? Perhaps lots of reasons. But Jesus comes to the core of it and says, let's just cut to the chase here. I'm going to die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. I'm not indifferent to your suffering. I, I see it. In fact, I'm willing to take it on myself. I'll take the bullet for you. I'll perish for you. That's why I came. 
And then, now, if he hadn't followed through, that would have been bad. It would have been a vain and empty promise. But we know he follows through on it. See, at the, at the core of Christianity, at the very core of it, the thing that makes it more than a religious system, the thing that breathes life into it, and the thing that makes us, if we're questioning people, pop up our heads and go, wait, wait, perhaps God is good. Perhaps it's not as simple as a random sequence of events. If, if God saw me, came to earth, lived on earth, and was willing to call his shot and to die for me, that might change everything. You see, that's actually my story. There was nothing about the world before I came, became a Christian that made me think, oh yeah, there's a good God. I thought that there isn't one. Looking at Jesus began to show me, present the possibility that something else might be true. See, if somebody is willing to lay down their life for you, give everything for you, this builds trust. They have my best interest at heart. So much so that they're willing to walk into the greatest fear that I have and face it and take it for me. And so then when they say, come, follow me, I believe they're on my side. It is a simple reality of Christianity. Jesus died for you. He cares for your pain. Now, you might perhaps then have other questions of, so why is there so much pain in the world? Fair questions. But this changes the nature of how we approach it. Okay. I want to try to figure that out and what to do with that. But I do know this. I do know that God is not oblivious to it. He's on my side and actually is going to enter in to see it end. You may have to answer the question of why it's there. What I don't have to answer the question of is, does God see it? Does he care for me? And is he willing and eager to see my pain end? And then as you walk through the life of Jesus and as you go through John, I hope you'll see this over and over again. And as we read the other parts of the New Testament, we see over and over again the passion of Jesus for the people around him. He presented such a different picture of what God looked like than the religious leaders of the day, and that he cared for people, he wept for people, he healed people, he walked alongside people, and then he died for them. And so we get to see a picture of what God is like. God is the one who walks alongside us, who sees our pain and bears our pain. And then he moves on. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not other sheep pen. Okay, I know, sometimes this stuff gets confusing. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. It's that part of it. They too will listen to my voice. The second thing that Jesus says about affirming the credibility of the goodness of God is one, I'll lay down my life for you. Watch. Two, I'm going to speak to your heart. You'll hear my voice and you'll know it. You'll intuitively know that there is a God who is there. Cutting through all the midst of other voices you hear, there is another voice that will persistently pursue your heart with words that you are mine, you're my beloved. I'm calling you to myself. In fact, 
that is what the Bible does over and over again. We hear the voice of God speaking out to us, clarifying in the midst of the incidents and events of our lives that there is someone who is speaking to our heart and actually understands us. And it's in those moments when you're reading the Bible, and I really hope multiple times this year as you're reading through the New Testament, that what will happen is a verse will pop out and it will so resonate with who you are and what's true of your life that it will reaffirm to you that God is speaking to your heart. I hear His voice. I know it. And knowing that there is somebody who is out there who understands me and sees me makes all the difference. There's somebody who has my best interest at heart and always shout. Why does it matter? Really, why does it matter if we believe that God is good? Why can't we just go on our own merry way and believe that God is indifferent? This is why. How you face the world and how you face the struggles that you face and the joys that you experience will be dramatically colored by where you believe God is in the midst of that. I will tell you a story. And it's a true story. My um my dad has lost the plot. My eighty four year old dad has taken a turn around the bend and life has become confusing for him. Scary, disoriented, he's delusional. Somebody who prides himself in his fierce independence has lost the ability to be independent. And so, that is what we face now. So what do we do with that? And a number of you have faced the same thing, or will in days to come. What do you do with that? And part of it is you struggle through how do you handle that, you know? Nan and I came to decisions about, well, they probably should come live with us. And I know there will be massive struggles in that. And there's a part of it that goes like, okay, so is this just our lot in life? Here's another thing thrown at us that we'll have to deal with. Well, sure. But what I discovered, which actually it caught me off guard in a, in a, in a, in a wonderful way, and I think man comes to this so much more easily than I do. And so I was pleasantly surprised that this was really what was true within me. Is that I remember thinking to myself, there will be beauty in this. Without blinders on, without trying to whitewash it, I know there will be struggles. I had this firm conviction, which I still have, that there will be beauty in this. Not, this will be good for my character. Probably true. Needs work, so why not? But there will be beauty in this. It's such a, it has not, it has not, has not flipped. Why do I believe there will be beauty in this? Because I believe God has my best interest at heart. Because I do not believe God is an indifferent God or an arrogant and nasty God. I believe He's a God who loves me, who proved it by dying on the cross for me, who speaks to my heart through His Word and through my own soul. And so I believe he's on my side. And he's on your side. And so because of that, I believe there'll be beauty in it. Why? Because God is not throwing stuff at my life. He's invaded my life. And he's invaded yours. And so there will be beauty. And there will be joy. And there will be peace. And there will be power. Because God is good. 
and He loves you in the midst of your struggle and is in the center of your joys. And there will be beauty. God is not good. It is either a random sequence of events or something darling. The death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The words of God spoken through the scripture. The pursuit of your soul through the spirit. It's proof positive that God is good. Cling to that. Let that central concept grow deeper and deeper. Because it's does, you will face the world in a different way. And you will see beauty in the midst of it. And you'll see the hand of God bringing joy into your life. So let's pray. Lord, in the midst of our lives, the great strength and shield and the fortress for our soul is who you are. Those foundational truths slip from us sometime and we live with peripheral truths. Within the tangential concepts. Father, I pray by your spirit that today for everyone in the room, whether they are somebody exploring faith or somebody long in faith, somebody struggling or somebody soaring, that you would sink this foundational truth to each one of our souls. That it's not simply that you were there and that you're not silent, that you were there and you're not silent, and you are good and you are on our side. And you have our very best interests at heart. And so in the midst of this world, you are weighing in powerfully, majestically. And so there will be beauty in the midst of our days. Thank you for the death of Jesus Christ, which both rescues our soul and proves to us who you are. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, as we move into this time of response... It is the time of response. It's the time for us to both reflect and to bring out of our soul what we what we feel, what we experience. The joy, the passion, the questions. This is the heart of our, our faith. I encourage you to wade into this second set of, of, uh, of worship. It, it, as we do so, that we'll receive an offering, which is our way to frame this part of the, the service. We believe that we give out of all that God has given to us. And as that those baskets come around also. If you're, if you're new here or if you have questions, you've been here for me, you have questions, you can pick up one of our connecting cards and jot that information. Particularly, I have questions today. Today, for, today, perhaps you came in wondering, is God good? Is He even there? And I'd like to know more about the nature of a relationship with God. We'll check that and one of us will get back to you. Yes, will come forward receive the offering.
feel like you're electrically here. Everything is trying to keep you from getting here. Um, us this morning in the band, we had one of those mornings, and once we all finally rolled in, we just started playing, and we just started doing what we do, playing music, and it wasn't until about three quarters through all of our songs, we realized that we had not stopped, and we had not invited God to join us this morning. Um, I don't want us as a room and everyone here to miss that opportunity because we are here. Um, so I just invite you to just stop. These are, we, we're doing all hymns this morning. These are all words that have been given for many, many, many years. And they still range. Um, so just stop and, and invite God to um, really uh, affect you this morning. Rose you. 